Welcome to A Voice of Reason with your host, Kathy Horton and Sherry Petro-Serdell. We are offered new opportunities for growth daily. And with new opportunities, challenges are presented. Together, we can address the challenges and explore these opportunities. Now, here's Kathy Horton with Sherry Petro-Serdell. Welcome to A Voice of Reason. This is Kathy Horton, and I am with Sherry Petro-Serdell. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Hey, today we're going to share and discuss insights about relationships. If you want knowledge to help you improve how you show up, especially with loved ones, then this show is for you. Yes. Our audience is in for a treat. Um, We are speaking with Dr. Stephen Stosny. He is the author of Empowered Love, and that's his latest book, and it's going to be released on January 17th. I read his book, Soar Above, and loved it about how our brain works and stress, and so I think you're going to be so intrigued by this man's story and his wisdom. So, Stephen, before we jump right into the book, I'm going to ask you to give a little background um, about your life. What, um, what made you focus on the teaching of compassion and um, just a little intro for all of us? Well, uh, I grew up in a very violent home and went through a, a period in my young adulthood, a very deep depression about that. Uh, that was facilitated by a sudden death of my father, who was the most violent person. Uh, and I was like early 30s when that happened. And to climb out of the depression, I realized I have to try to look at him more compassionately. And that didn't condone what he did, but it humanized him. And when I humanized him, I felt more humane myself. Mm. Uh, so, so that's how I, I, I actually developed it before I uh, uh, became a therapist, <laughs> before I went to graduate <laughs> school even, uh, to uh, get out of, to get my own life in order. Mm-hmm. But the way I started using it as an intervention uh, happened a few years later. Uh, I had, was asked to take over a domestic violence research project at the University of Maryland where I was teaching because the, the person who got the grant was sick and couldn't do it, and the university would have to give back the money if they didn't do the study, and the university mm-hmm. won't give back money. So I <laughs> sort of drafted into doing it. I didn't really want to do it because of my history. I didn't want to get into that. But when I started researching it, the predominant view of domestic violence then, uh, well, still is to some extent, uh, was that men are trying to exert power and control over women to oppress women and that violence was a way of doing that. And that sounded right to me from my experience. And I asked my mother about it because she was there. She was the victim of most of the violence. And she said it's not really about power and control because in a love relationship, uh, and especially when it's in conflict, you're always trying to control your partner, but both people are trying to control. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Find out why they can't feel compassion, and then you might have something. Uh, and that's what started it. You know, the, these uh, abusers get so cut off from their ability to create value and meaning in your life, and the only way you can do that is really to be more compassionate and kind, that they uh, get inured to compassion. They feel guilt and shame, most of them, when they hurt people they love, but that's always after the fact. 
compassion comes before the fact. That's what keeps us from hurting people, not guilt and shame. If I'm compa- compa- I know I'm not going to like myself if I hurt you. That's what's going to keep me from doing it. But if I rely on guilt and shame, I'll have to hurt you and then remember that I didn't like doing it. <laughs> so <laughs> compassion is before the fact, prevents the fact, and guilt and shame comes after it. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. And I can see how working with um, violent people who don't have compassion for themselves, how helpful this would be. So thank you for giving us a little bit of that background. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And I just want to applaud you for really being a, an, a great example of not falling into a victim role, but taking uh, very, very tough beginnings and um, turning it into a very positive story. So thank you so much for for sharing that. And so, you know, I know uh, because we were able to see you speak live that, you know, you actually took all of that knowledge and taught compassion in prisons to help rehabilitate the prisoners. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, uh, when I got the idea to try to prevent violence by teaching compassion and value and meaning uh, to criminals, that was my first target group. It didn't exactly light up the governor's office. This was back in the law and order <laughs> stage of politics. Back in but I had a friend okay. in the governor's office who uh, convinced him to let me try it uh, with people in prison. But the condition was they would never get out of prison. <laughs> So these were multiple murders, and that was before three strikes and you're out. This was back when to be never get out of prison, you had to have consecutive life sentences, which means killing more than one person. Uh, So our first group, it had 12 guys in it, and they had all been convicted of killing, uh, the minimum was three people. Oh, wow. That was a little scary. Tough clients <laughs> in <laughs> the beginning, but you know that turned out to be the best group I've ever done. My whole career it was one of the first because wow. it was like a drop of moisture on a parched tongue. They were so hungry for some kind of humanity, and it broke through them. We showed, showed a video that showed domestic violence from a little boy's point of view, his mother being beat up. And most of them had experienced something like that. So when the lights went down to show that video, there were guards in the room, but still when the lights go down, when you're in a room full of murderers, (laughs) you get a little nervous. But when the lights came up, most of them had tears in their eyes. Wow. So so it was an amazing experience. And it did reduce their violence by 72%. It reduced their violence in prison. Uh, people get maxed out in prison because, in fact, one of them told me in the intake interview that so I get an, another life sentence, I'll get out in the 23rd century instead of the 22nd. <laughs> There's no more they can do to them once they get to a certain level of punishment. So they don't have an incentive not to be violent, but the, this actually did reduce their violence. Wow. But, you know, you don't want to to just wait till somebody kills someone to (laughs) teach them that. (laughs) Eventually, I found that the common denominator that leads us to be aggressive and violate our values is resentment. 
and that's it. Everybody experiences resentment. Now, most people don't let it fester to the point where it becomes violent, but that's the focal point. So that's where we started dealing with a normal population that are just unhappy, not not violent or abusive. Wow, what a what a great intro! And thanks so much for sharing your perspective and a bit of your history. So I think with that um, th- that lead-in for resentment, it's a great time to turn our attention to your new book, Empowered Love. So will you kick things off on the book with sharing with us what is Empowered Love? Well, Empowered Love is based on your deeper values rather than your temporary feelings. See, we fall in love uh, in in the toddler brain, that's the part of the brain that's fully developed by age three, and it's where emotions and impulses uh, and a few physiological responses are processed. That's mostly what goes on in the toddler brain. And in the toddler brain, emotions are alarms, they're signals. Uh, and when the emotions are positive, that's that's great. You're walking on air, you know, that's what falling in love is. You're walking on a cloud. But to stay in love, you have to stay in love in the adult brain. That's not fully developed till age 28, and that's where we have values. See, toddlers have lots of preferences, a lot, uh, but no values. A value is something you think is important above and beyond survival considerations and worthy of appreciation, time, energy, effort, and sacrifice. That comes from the adult brain. And that's what it takes to maintain love. Falling in love is easy. Staying in love is hard. Yes, yes. (laughs) Isn't that true? true? So that's empowered love when we're operating from our values and the maturity of our adult brain. Yeah, and it works out emotionally because your strongest emotions are really guardians of your deepest values. Whenever you violate a value, you're going to feel guilty and shamed. And, you know, I actually learned that working with abusive people. Abuse gets worse on its own. It's degenerative. It doesn't get better Mm -hmm. on its own Uh, because they keep doing things that they feel guilty and ashamed about. But instead of using the guilt and shame to motivate them to be more loving, compassionate, and kind, they blame it on their partners Mm -hmm. or their children. You had it coming, or you were rude to me, or you didn't understand I had a difficult childhood. (laughs) And the blame is what perpetuates. Blame is a toddler defense. If you ask a two-year-old what happened to the lamp, he or Mm -hmm. she's going to blame it on someone. My daughter was an only child. She used to say, Jimmy, do it. That was her imaginary <laughs> friend. <laughs> She's now a lawyer. We'll find somebody to blame, won't we? <laughs> so blame, if that doesn't work, they'll deny it. I don't know what happened to the lamp. And if that doesn't work, they hide. Avoidance. Blame, denial, and avoidance. Two-year-olds begin doing that. And if you blame, every time you violate a value, you're going to feel a certain amount of guilt and shame. Uh, and if you blame that on your partner, it gets worse and worse. If you follow the motivation of the guilt and shame, you'll become more compassionate and kind. So it's really the way we cope with the guilt and shame that causes the problem, not the guilt and shame itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. 
So I'm going to ask you this. Um, what do you think causes so many people to repeat over and over in their intimate relationships, to keep repeating the same kind of cycle? Is it that cycle of guilt and blame and then feeling bad, and so they'll repeat it over and over again? Yes, Is, they act in yeah, their okay. feelings instead of their values. See, whenever you act... Uh, the problem with acting in feelings is, is whenever you feel something or you say to yourself, I feel something, I feel whatever it is, rejected, powerless, inadequate, unlovable, sad, whatever mm-hmm. it is, your brain will load into implicit memory lots of other times you felt that way. Okay. And you're likely to select, in fact, you're, you're, you're most likely to select a behavior that you did in the past when you were feeling that way. Mm-hmm. And that's probably going to be the wrong thing. Yes. <laughs> that's what got you in trouble anyway. Make yes. you critical, complaining, and yeah. it's going to get you more of what you don't want. Uh, what the, the book advises people to do, instead of saying, I, like, I'm feeling rejected, you, you do say, I feel rejected, but I want to feel connected. If you focus on how you want to feel, then your brain will load into implicit memory other times you felt connected. Mm -hmm. And those are times when you were probably more open, kinder, more compassionate, more loving. And you're likely to select a behavior that will be more successful to get you what you want. So uh, if you act on your feelings, you're going to make the same mistake over and over again because they're about the past, and they will make you do something from the past. But if you act on your values, how you want to be, the kind of person you want to be, the kind of partner you want to be, then you have meaningful change. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's just great information. So, um, you know, another thing from the book that uh, I've, I thought was very interesting is this grand human contradiction. So can you tell us what that is? Yeah, it's one of the things that makes being a human hard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We have very powerful drives, two competing drives. One is to be autonomous, independent. We want to decide our own thoughts, feelings, and behavior. One of the worst things for humans is to feel controlled, to feel like we have to submit. Uh, in fact, we're pretty unique among social animals in that most animals like to submit because it makes them feel secure to fit into a hierarchy, like your dogs like to yes. submit. Right. <laughs> you, you wanna, if you have a dog, do a, a, a cute little... Uh, attachment exercise with them. Try to get on the floor and get lower than them. <laughs> it, it drives them crazy because I used to have a little Bichon. They're only small, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of feet high. She would try to dig on the, into the floor to get under me. <laughs> <laughs> that they is have to be true. We have up too, and we're experiencing that same thing. They just want to please us and be close to us. Hmm. Right. But humans hate to submit. We hate to feel controlled. Yet the other drive is to connect to someone on whom we can rely and who can rely on us. Those are contradictory drives. They're pulling you in opposite directions. If you go too far into connection, you're going to lose a sense of your individuality, lose a sense of yourself. 
And if you go too far into independence or, or selfhood, you're going to lose the connection. Mm-hmm. So it's a, they're drives that have to be balanced. And the way to balance them is through your values, not your feelings. Your feelings are going to keep you going back and forth with them. And it's going to be like riding two galloping horses with one foot on each. It's going to be very mm-hmm. precarious. But with your values, uh, part, part of my core value is to be compassionate and kind to you. And that balances them because mm-hmm. I'm being true to myself while I'm being kind and compassionate to you, which strengthens the connection. But you'll yeah. never balance them just by acting on feelings. So that's the grand human contradiction, our sense of independence and autonomy and our desire to connect. Right. Okay. Well, I'm just going to own up here for uh, our listeners because um, that one hits home for me. And I know that I often strive for a balance between these uh, this autonomy and connection. And in my past, um, one of my ways to really be autonomous was I put a lot of effort into my physical fitness and my exercise routines, you know, from running road races to triathlons to playing tennis and, and uh, riding challenging bike rides. Um, I also I'm getting tired to... listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but what I was running from, I think, was really solid connections. Um, I wanted a connection, but in my brain at that time, they were separate kind of competing priorities. And I'll tell you, this ruined uh, more than a couple of relationships <laughs> in my life. So... Um, it's taken a lot of years to get things a, a bit more balanced, but it was great, great to read this grand human contradiction and put my own past into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, everyone struggles with it. And if you try to balance it with values or with feelings, rather, it'll, yeah. you'll always lose because feelings yeah. are transitory. They come and go where values are more or less permanent. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. We hope. No matter how you feel, you still love the people you love, right? Even if you feel sick, mm-hmm. if you feel tired, <laughs> even if you don't feel like paying attention to them, you still love them, and the love is more important than the feeling, so you pay attention to them, and you don't feel like it. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the way it, it works. Yes. Core value is about what's more most important. Yeah. And because values are part of a motivational system, motivations have to be hierarchical. Some things have to be more important than other things. That's mm-hmm. the way our brains are designed. If you d- doubt that, try putting a cabbage down, a garbage disposal, and a kitten and see if your yes. brain doesn't make a distinction. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. So, uh, some, um, some things have to be more important than others. The problem with feelings is feelings create a sense of importance. The importance comes from two sources, either feelings or values. Uh, the feelings can create a sense of importance that, of things that are not important. In fact, Sylvan Tompkins, a researcher, told us a lot about emotions, uh, said that with feelings, anything is important, and without feelings, nothing is important. Mm. So uh, the, the way that plays out in relationships 
if you think about a conflict you have with your partner and whatever triggered the conflict, see, what you really fight about is the disconnection, but there was some trigger to it. Somebody said or did something. Whatever that was, uh, think about how important that is in your life, <laughs> in the course of your life. Will you even remember that? In a yeah, in the grand weeks, whatever, scheme, Whatever yes. triggered it. But at the time, it felt extremely important because the feeling was creating a sense of importance instead of your values. So you want your values to be what's important in your life, not the feelings. Well, I... Thanks so much, Stephen, for all this great information. And it's time for a short break, so we're not finished with this topic. We'll uh, come back and talk a bit more about it. I encourage you to click on A Voice of Reason in the show links section. Check out our upcoming workshops, our classes, and sign up for our email list. Stay with us to hear more about how to be the best partner you can be. You're listening to A Voice of Reason on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions, some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Life carries many uncertainties. Just when we think we may know where we are headed or think we have what we need, life happens and we are redirected. Join host Trina Wines each week for Life Happens, Let's Talk. By hearing stories from people just like you, as well as guest experts who can help, you'll arrive at your own understanding of the role you play in creating the outcome of your life. Listen live every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to A Voice of Reason. To reach the show today, call into 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd prefer to connect via email, our address is info at avoiceofreasonbook.com. Now back to this week's show. 
Well, we're back with Dr. Stephen Stosny, and he was speaking a few moments ago about feelings and values and how important it is to have our values um, determine our actions. So, um, Stephen, I talk about the monkey mind or the, the monkey brain, and you call it the toddler brain, which I like also. Could you identify and talk to us a little bit about how the adult brain and the toddler brain work in relationships? Uh, well, the toddler brain is uh, uh, what goes on there. It's the mid-region of the brain that's actually common to all mammals. It's not unique to humans. Uh, it, it, mostly what goes on there is, is motivations, impulses, and, and feelings, emotions. It's an alarm system. Uh, the feelings are not self-regulated there uh, because toddlers can't take care of themselves. So they just mm-hmm. sound an alarm and somebody else has to come and solve the problem. Uh, uh, it's pretty egocentric. It's impossible from in the toddler brain to see another person's perspective. The only way you see other people in the toddler brain is how you feel about them at that moment. And people who conduct relationships with the toddler brain or get a kind of Jekyll and Hyde personality because if they feel good, they're wonderful and loving. And if they feel bad, they're demons. (laughs) And you're a demon if they feel bad Mm -hmm. Uh, because they they have no frame of reference outside of their current feelings. The toddler brain is fully developed on a structural level by age three. The adult brain is uh, what we think of as being most human. That's where uh, theory of mind is. That's the ability to perceive what other people are, are feeling and experiencing apart from you, to see other perspectives. Uh, it's logic and analysis. Language com- comes from there, uh, organized thought, uh, and values. That's what's most important, the pro-social emotions like compassion, uh, come from there. Uh, mm-hmm. Toddlers can be kind, they can be generous, but it's very hard for them to really be compassionate. They can be empathetic even, they can feel what you're feeling, but they won't have any understanding of it because that requires uh, the, the prefrontal cortex. Now, the, mm-hmm. I call it the adult brain because it's not fully myelinated till 28. <laughs> You know, nature thought it was more important to be an alarm <laughs> than to yeah. be able to regulate the alarm. Oh, uh, and the adult brain regulates impulses and regulates uh, uh, feelings. We have to guide children so much because they can't regulate their impulses. Mm-hmm. You can't really do that until you get prefrontal cortex development. So uh, in relationships, the toddler brain is going to just send out alarms uh, and it's going to use the toddler coping mechanisms to deal with their, the feelings, blame, denial, and avoidance. So the alarm isn't just going to be, I feel bad. The alarm is going to be, I feel bad and it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then yeah. when someone feels blame, it's more likely to put them in their toddler brains. So they're saying, well, it's your fault that I feel bad. And then your <laughs> arguments are reduced to, or your disagreements are reduced to one of you saying mine or my way and the other saying no, which are the <laughs> two favorite words of the toddler, mine and no. Yes. 
<laughs> By the way, mine and no is the, the, uh, the grand human contradiction. See, toddlerhood is uh, the terrible twos are terrible because that's when the first time in development when children are beginning to see that they're separate from their parents. Before that, they feel it's a process psychologists call merging. They feel like you know what they're thinking and feeling, whatever they're thinking and feeling, you're thinking and feeling. But at around two, two and a half, they begin to see they have a different agenda from you. <laughs> they, they, have, they want things different. They feel things different. Uh, uh, so they're always saying mine. The more they have, the more separate they feel. And no, because it's a negative identity, they don't know who they are but they know who they're not. They're not whatever you want. <laughs> so it's mine or no. And toddler brain arguments in adults are mine and no. Now, I should say that everyone has a toddler brain. Everyone can go into it under stress. And the reason is uh, habits are, all animals, including humans, will revert to habits under stress. So under stress, we're more likely to revert to blame, denial, and avoidance, even though we know that that never improves anything and never makes anything better. Um, And you're more likely to be in the toddler brain in a love relationship because most of us have never felt, haven't felt so powerless of our own emotions since we were toddlers. So, Stephen, is that why we often treat the closest people to us the worst, because of that love relationship connection? Well, we treat them the worst because we're blaming them when we feel bad. And the blame gives you a retaliation motive. See, blame gives you adrenaline. Adrenaline gives you temporary energy and confidence. Uh, And what happens with blame is, Blame is a way of transferring guilt and shame. So if the problem between us is your fault, then I feel less guilt and shame. But it also makes me feel powerless. There's nothing I can do about it. So I have to control you to do something about it. And that's what the toddlers do. They scream and their parents come and do something for them. (laughs) That's what we're doing in that toddler brain. And we're hurting each other because... You don't want to do what I'm telling you to do. It hurts me that you won't do it, and it hurts me that you're asking me to do it, or it hurts you that I'm asking you to do it. You know, a sure indication of Tyler Brain argument, if you're thinking, if he loves me, he would do this. Yeah. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> because he could just so as well that? say, if she loved me, she wouldn't ask me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the toddler brain. It's mm-hmm. egocentric. It's not seeing both perspectives together. Yeah. I get it. You know, in your book, uh, you mentioned that many couples enter into counseling in the toddler brain, and often they want to find better ways to manipulate their partners. Can you tell yeah, us Yeah, uh, my specialty is resentment and anger, so I, I'm sure I see more of that than the average therapist. But I, I can't, you know, I've had over 3,000 clients, uh, and I can't remember one who came say, I want to be a better person and partner. 
they all come with how do I get the sucker to do what I want. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Oh, that's kind of and discouraging. What I have to tell them is the only way you're going to get that sucker to do what you want is to be a better partner. <laughs> so we get there anyway. It just takes we, a yeah, bit longer. Yeah, we have to take it back. To, your only chance of getting the partner you most want to have is to be the partner you most want to be. Yes. Right. So um, I'm wondering about relationship skills. What is the most important relationship skill that we can help our couples out there develop? What would you say? I, I, I believe it's what I call binocular vision. That's the ability okay. to see your perspective and your partners at the same time, to hold them together. So the only way you can get an accurate view of, of any given interaction and your relationship as a whole is by being able to see both perspectives. If you only see your own perspective, even if you're completely right, that's never completely right, but even if it were, uh, it would be incomplete. It's only part of the picture. It's not showing you any depth or dynamics. Now, uh, if, if we're just incomplete, it wouldn't be so bad. But the human brain, a lot of experiments have shown this. When it doesn't perceive something, it guesses. Okay. For instance, binocular vision is a function of having two eyes. That's how we get depth perception, and and it's how we can judge speed and, and direction of movement. If you cover up one eye, you should not be able to perceive uh, uh, depth perception. But when you cover up one eye, your brain is guessing what the other eye would see, so you don't. The world doesn't look flat. Mm-hmm. An interesting experiment, it took me several weeks to actually remember to do it. I would write a note for myself. When you first wake up in the morning, before you open your eyes, cover up one eye. And then when you open your eyes, it'll, for a couple of seconds, the world will look flat before your brain starts guessing again. Ah, hmm. So all, all of that is, is to say that if... You don't see your partner's perspective. You're going to guess at what it is. And the guess is going to be based on how you feel at that moment. So if you're feeling negative, the guess is going to be negative. If I'm feeling rejected, I'm going to guess that my partner is rejecting. Where the reality is, if I'm feeling rejected, my partner's probably feeling overwhelmed or distracted. That's most likely what, what's happening. But if I don't see my partner's perspective, I'm going to guess wrong mm-hmm. and negatively. And the guess itself is going to make it worse. You know, so along that line, um, you made the point that most of what couples argue about is not the real issue. It's not the words we're saying. Can you explain that? Yeah, what, what people tell researchers they are fight about is uh, in order, money, sex, jealousy, division of labor, raising the kids and in-laws. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I don't think those things cause fights. I think they trigger disconnection. And what we fight about is the failure of compassion that occurs in the disconnection. Uh, if you think about any argument where you, where you felt hurt uh, it, it, with a loved one who came because the, from the belief that your partner doesn't care or doesn't get how you're feeling, doesn't value how you feel. 
if you believe that your feelings are valued by your partner, whatever triggered it, you will give and take to, uh, to work out. It's when you don't feel that your partner values your feelings that you fight. So what you fight about is failure of compassion. And the reason you fight about failure of compassion is because compassion is what forms emotional bonds. It's not really love that forms emotional bonds. It's compassion. Uh, think of when you were falling in love with whomever you eventually fell in love with, when you were courting that person and developing vulnerable feelings for that person, and God forbid you had to call him or her with bad news. My mother passed away last night. And if that person responded, well, tough, call me when you get over it. I just want to have a few laughs here. <laughs> Would you have fallen yeah. in love with that person? I, no, that <laughs> nope. doesn't sound right. It just doesn't no, sound right, you does only it? Fall, form a bond with someone who cares about how you feel, especially when you feel bad. Uh, now, you might be wrong about that. You might, you might think they care when they don't, but you, you won't form the bond without caring. Even newborns who are attachment machines, you know, your drive to form an attachment bond is never as strong in your entire life as it is the first six months of life. Yes. Because all they can do for their survival is attach to someone who's going to care about them or take care of them, feed them, and change them and all that. But even they won't attach to you if you don't answer their cries, if you don't show that you care when they're distressed. And they will stop yes. crying. Makes no so much sense about why compassion cry. is so important in relationships. Yeah, because, yeah. Uh, and why it feels like betrayal, a failure of compassion. You know, if you got me to fall in love with you by making me believe that you cared about how I feel, and now yes. you don't. Now you mm-hmm. care more about being right than how I feel. <laughs> that feels like betrayal. Yes. Uh, All right. Well, thanks for helping us understand so much of the valuable content in your book. Um, stay with us to hear more about being the partner you want to be. You're listening to A Voice of Reason on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. your better business achieve that goal make good on that resolution the voice america empowerment channel it's your world motivate change succeed broaden your mind open your heart for a greater understanding of how to express your pure and authentic nature tune in and turn on 1111 talk radio simron author, publisher, and life mentor, broadens minds and opens hearts to a greater understanding of life, consciousness, and humanity. 1111 Talk Radio is every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 1111 Talk Radio. You are not on a journey. You are the journey. You are experience experiencing itself. Have you always known that something different was possible for your life and in the world? What if you could create beyond your current reality? If your relationships, finances, business, health, and life could be anything, what would they be? Join Heather Nichols for an invitation to discover what is true for you in every area of your life. 
and for conversations loaded with pragmatic tools for how to create it. Listen live every Monday at noon Pacific and 9 p.m. Central European Time for Creating Beyond Reality on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Build a better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are listening to A Voice of Reason. To reach the show today, call into 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd prefer to connect via email, our address is info at avoiceofreasonbook.com. Now back to this week's show. So, Stephen, can you tell us how does the failure of compassion lead to resentment? Well, when you're resentful, you are actually expecting that your partner's going to disappoint you. It's a way of protecting yourself from being blindsided by disappointment because anticipated disappointment's better than unanticipated. So it's a, it's a more or less chronic state to help you from the pain of failure of compassion. Uh, it's degenerative. It's always going to get worse because when you're resentful, you, you're not all that loving and kind yourself, uh, which means you're going to get a more negative response from your partner. Um, compa- uh, resentment is not an aphrodisiac. It's not, it's yeah. not going to attract uh, the kind of loving hmm. behavior and compassion behavior you would like. See, one of the swindles of resentment is you resent your partner for not caring how you feel. But when you're resentful, you don't care how your partner feels. (laughs) So so what you're saying is, I don't care about how you feel, but you absolutely must care about how I feel. And that's not going to work on most planets. (laughs) Uh, And that's degenerative. It's going to get worse. It's going to left on its own. It's going to turn into contempt and eventually either abuse or disillusion of the relationship or both. Um, The way out, though, is to recognize that everything you feel resentful about, you could also be compassionate about. And everything you're compassionate about, you could also resent. It depends what you want to focus on. Uh, And If you're compassionate about something you don't like, you're far more able to get it changed than if you're resentful. If you're resentful about something, uh, you're actually justifying that behavior in the other person's mind because resentment has a retaliation motive. Resentment's devaluing. So if I'm going to devalue you because you're doing something I don't like, you're not likely to be more cooperative. Who's more cooperative, the valued self or the devalued self? Mm -hmm. Uh, But the real, uh, it's not merely that it's more likely to get positive change in your relationship. The real benefit of it for your sense of self is In a love relationship, you like yourself better when you're compassionate and you like yourself less when you're resentful. 
Mm-hmm. Now, that's not whether you should like yourself. Of course you should when you're resentful, but you won't. Your brain's not designed to value yourself when you're devaluing someone you value. Yep. Uh-huh. It can't right. do it. So I think the best guide for behavior is, well, I like myself better doing A or well, I like myself better yeah. doing B. Yeah. Yeah. And that's about value. Uh, I might feel more powerful doing A, but am I going to like myself better? Mm-hmm. Yes. So thank you for that. Um, what is the most loving thing that we could say to our partner that would send the most com- compassionate um, message to them? Is there something, uh, something that would bring us close together right away? Uh, I, I think it's teach me how to love you. Teach me how really to know, love you. We, we, we don't really know how to love each other. And the reasons for that, are it's, it's very complex, but part of it's the grand human contradiction. But, but, but the other part is the historical roles for relationships are completely broken down. Gender roles are broken down. Uh, biology actually militates against long-term relationships. You know, nature has an investment in getting you together, but not in keeping you together, because pair bonding is relatively recent in human history. You know, before that, we were tribal, mm-hmm. so a parental investment in children wasn't necessary because it was usually the older people in the village would raise the children, and the younger people would go out and hunt and gather. Um, that's why grandparents are much better than parents now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, okay. That's the, the evolution brought us there. So uh, biology is actually going to work against it. Uh, if you don't, uh, oh, and also marrying for love is relatively recent. It's only a couple hundred years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And marriage is actually better designed for arrangement because you're meeting someone you don't know. Uh, very often you didn't even see the person you were going to marry until your your wedding day. That's why it's bad luck to see the bride on the wedding day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> even if you're living with them for a year before you get married, <laughs> you have to go to a hotel the night before you get married because <laughs> it's bad luck. That's where that tradition came from. Oh. But uh, So you're meeting someone with a low level of interest, compassion, trust, and love. There's nowhere to go but up. We are marrying at a very high level of interest, trust, compassion, love, really an unsustainable level because it takes so much attention and so much emotional resources, and there's nowhere to go but down. So to keep connected, you've got feelings aren't going to do it. The feelings are going to militate against it. It's got to be values. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what makes you feel loved. You're different from me. Uh, you have, you know, you're not my brother or sister, so you have a different family history, different genetic makeup, different life experiences, different hormonal balances, different developmental trajectory. It means you matured at different stages of development. All of those are going to greatly influence the emotional meaning you give to events and behaviors. So tell me what I can do to make you feel loved. And then I will tell you what you can do to make it easier for me to do that. Now, I'll give you an example of, uh, of how I did that in my own relationship when I was, was developing this. I uh, asked my wife what would make her feel loved, 
And she said, well, you know, bring me flowers now and then. And I said, well, I, you know, I actually would like doing that, but when I bring, this will make it easier for me to do it. When I bring them, would you appreciate that I bring them? Do you say, oh, they're beautiful or something like that? She said, okay, I can do that. And then she asked, what can I do to make you feel loved? And I said, well, when I come in uh, from, from being out, I want you to stop whatever you're doing, you know, unless you're on the phone or your boss or something. Stop whatever you're doing and come and give me a hug. Because uh, my mother used to do that, so that makes me feel loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she said, well, I can do that, but this will make it easier for me to do it. When I come and hug you, hold the hug. Don't just walk by me like you often do because mm-hmm. <laughs> you're running mm-hmm. to the bathroom or you have to return a call or something. And I said, okay, I can do that. So you want to make your partner feel loved, and the interactive part of it, your partner wants to make it easy for you to do what will make them feel loved. So one of the ironies of resentment is you make it very hard for your partner to do what you want. You're almost, when you're resentful, you're almost daring your partner to love you. <laughs> there, I'm going to make it as hard for you as I can. So we really want to make it easier. So that is, um, you're giving us a great reminder of how important communicating is, communicating what our needs are and then finding out what someone else's needs are and then listening. I know that you make a distinguishment between hearing and listening, and it's important for us to listen. Yeah, that's another thing that we have to do intentionally because our brains naturally filter out familiar sounds, including familiar voices. Uh, the It's the white noise effect. When you get used to a sound level, you, you, you filter out the air conditioner. You don't hear it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a problem in schools, you know, where they don't change grades. By November, the kids aren't are tuning out the teacher's voice, so they have to yes. bring in assistance mm-hmm. so they hear other voices. But it happens in marriage all the time. Uh, in fact, I t- it ha- women are, tend to be more victims of that because they tend to talk more. So their children and their uh, partners will tune out their voices more. What I mm-hmm. tell people is you've got to really try to listen And um, if you want to get your partner's attention, alter your tone of voice. Don't use the same one. Mm -hmm. Like speak a little lower, then they have to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Yep. But that's biology. That's the way the brain works. It's not Mm -hmm. that I don't love you. It's that I filtered out your voice because Mm -hmm. I'm used to it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great, great advice for all of us. Thank you so much. You know, another one from the book, it was a great example that I came across, and that is um, that we long remember what hurtful things were said or done to us. Um, but we often have a very short memory <laughs> regarding hurtful things we have said or done. So yeah, the, 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 our that? brains did not evolve to record injury we inflict. <laughs> it evolved to record injury we suffer. So, you know, I've been saying that for 20-some years, but now we have brain imaging where you can actually see what's going on inside of somebody's brain when they're having an emotional talk. It's very clear that what the other person is saying is going into long-term memory, and what we're saying is not. (laughs) So you're not likely to remember what you're doing. So 
So I'll remember the worst thing you did, but I don't remember that uh, what I did that you were reacting to when you did that. <laughs> I had a, a prime example in one of our boot camps. This guy talked about his wife slamming the bedroom door and locking him out of it. And I said, well, you, that's a fear reaction, so you must have done something. No, I didn't. She just slammed the door. <laughs> And when we really thought about it, he yelled, was yelling at her, and that's why she slammed the door. <laughs> but he didn't remember yelling at her. He just remembered the door slamming, which is a dramatic kind of rejection. But he didn't remember what she was reacting to. We got to, you know, our partners are not psychotic. If they appear unreasonable or, or highly emotional, they're reacting to something. Mm-hmm. You've got to use your partner's reaction as a rearview mirror to illuminate your own blind spots. We all have blind spots because there's a very tiny portion of the prefrontal cortex that goes to objectively analyzing our own behavior, and that part gets no blood under, under emotional arousal. It's completely offline. Okay. Think of when you're able to do that. Really sit back and reflect on what you're contributing to a problem. You need to go on a weekend retreat to do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Thank you so much. Thank you for this interview. Yeah, a a real big thank you, Stephen, for joining us. Um, This has been just a wonderful educational hour. I just want to uh, remind all our listeners, CompassionPower.com is Stephen's website, and it has tremendous empowering content for all. I urge you to check it out. Remember to pre-order your copy of Empowered Love. It's a great book that can help you show up better in your relationships. Mm -hmm. I I suggest that you revisit the most enlightening content that you find in the book. Because if you're like me, you'll be able to take it deeper and deeper. You know, the analogy that I always use is it's like peeling an onion. When I dig into things that are painful or things that I need to improve about myself... It's almost as if my brain just protects me from being overwhelmed. I improve a layer at a time, and then I can keep digging a bit deeper. So tune in next week for Lessons Learned from My Clients. It's inside the therapist's head. We wish you a wonderful week. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in this week to A Voice of Reason. Please join your host, Kathy Horton and Sherry Petro-Serdell for another edition next Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until then, have a terrific week.